Hello again, and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast 2024. I'm still back on this whole new year, new you thing from the last episode. I don't know what that was, but I loved it. I feel like I need to get a foghorn that's like, you know what I'm saying? Really loud. Mix Master Mike, our editor, is going to love that. I'm sure that's going to go over real well. Everyone would love it to just like blowing their ear that's to right. pieces. That's right. You guys could be in the holy eardrum club with me, apparently. Right, right. Anyway, we digress. In today's episode, we're going to prove the point that y'all need adaptogens. To kind of borrow from the Southern the southern word y'all here, uh, I, I don't know, Amy. I, I'm kind of at this point with humanity and the evolution of my clinical way of thinking that, uh, to be frank, I thought that everybody needed adaptogens and nervines before 2020. And now, a couple years after the shit show that was 2020, we all know what happened. Um, I just, I really think that all of us need some adaptogens and some nervines and a lot of stress management techniques in our life. Um, Do you kind of have the same vibe? (laughs) Yeah. And and it, it probably... Like you said, it, it it just goes back, I think, from living in a period of time that we were, were not really evolved to live in. If we are just, we have more stressors now in some ways, but we also have less stressors too. Like that's the other thing, you know, we don't have to worry about food. Most of us, again, um, don't have to worry about food supply. Um, we're lucky about that. Again, we have roof over our heads. Um, but at the same time, like we're not necessarily getting tons of sunlight. We're not sleeping. And I'm saying we, as just a collective society, we don't really value sleep as much. We, uh, stress ourselves to the max and we have a lot of grind culture going on where we don't really prioritize rest. Um, I think that there's more emphasis on mental health now than in historically, but I still think some people might not necessarily be addressing their mental health. So I, go can ahead. I, can I say something about that real quick, though? Yeah. So what's funny about that, though, there's a stand-up comedian who has a bit about this, and sometimes I see it on Instagram. Mm, and I forget yep. who it is, so I can't cite him right now. But he has a bit where he's like, yeah, I think that we millennials are too in tune with our mental health. And he says something about, we all know what diagnosis we have. Mm. Like I have anxiety, but we're also not remedying the situation either. And whatever the presentation is, he said like, "Um, I have anxiety. Oh, okay. What are you doing about it? Nothing. I'm telling you so you can work around it. (laughs) Right. Right. So all of the talk about mental health is not, purely um, constructive, I guess. We, we need more yeah. coping mechanisms that are productive and useful. Yeah. And I do think that sometimes the way we talk about mental health is limited because the solutions might be pharmaceuticals or going to a therapist, which again, could both be very valuable options. But in reality, you probably want to support your sleep your stress management, your movement, your nutrition, you want to support all building these... a life that makes you happy, right? You want to support all these fundamental pieces. And it's not necessarily easy, especially if you're coming from 
a place where a lot of those things might have some deficits that you need to fill. But I think that that might be more of the missing link I see in the mental health space is there's more awareness around it. Um, But some of the solutions I think are very like one note instead of being more multifactorial since again, all these things affect mental health in, in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the way that I would phrase what you just said is that there's a lot more awareness, but not necessarily a ton more action. Yeah. Happening. Like again, there's some faultiness in the execution of how we're treating it and managing it. Well, and we're potentially launching into a whole tangent here, but I, I think, um, so it wouldn't one of be the, the IBS freedom without a, I know, I know, right. Launching um, it off into some tangent that's kind of related, but also unrelated to the current Tangentially related. Right. As a side note on this side note, by the way, I listened to somebody else's podcast for the first time in a while. Ironically, I have recorded 150 some odd episodes with you and I'm just not much of a podcast consumer on a day-to-day in my mm. own life. And I listened to somebody else's podcast and I was cracking up because it was very like to the point right. and, and just like structured and organized. And I was, I was laughing. So I was like, yeah, this is not my podcast. But um, one thing that I'll pose here before we get into some of the herbs is um, this guy. I, I have two books on my desk that I'm going to reference a little bit here. So David Winston um, has a wonderful book about adaptogens. It's wonderful for clinicians. I think it might be a little bit heavy and thick if you're not a clinician. But um, I remember in a webinar a couple of years back, or a conference or something, he was doing a lecture about herbs for depression, I think. Mm. And he made the point to say, depression can be a very normal response to an unhappy life. Mm. I was like, okay, like, that's a really good way to put it. And, and I think that there is this balancing act. And this is good to mention before we get into these herbs. I think that there are herbs, many of which we're going to talk about today that can help us manage our stress and manage our workload, and have more resiliency, more capacity for what life is going to throw at us. And they can help us in a lot of ways. However, if there's a really huge roadblock or hurdle or elephant in the room, these things are not miracle workers. So, you know, by all means, take the ashwagandha or the ulithro or whatever it might be. But if you're in a marriage that makes you miserable and you and your spouse do not get along and you're coinciding with somebody that you hate, they're not going to cure that. Uh, right? Are you sure? I mean, maybe. You think the ashwagandha can... What if, like, you pepper some ashwagandha in your partner's yogurt in their or mashed something? potatoes? Right. Maybe it can work. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm throwing that out there that there are going to be big things, and they're almost always the things that we don't want to deal with. So, again, mm-hmm. an unhappy relationship, a stressful living situation or a stressful relationship, a job stressful that's job. sucking the life out of you, mm-hmm. you know, um, those big things, or even I would make the argument too, if you are a vegan, and you're deficient in iron, deficient in B12, deficient in zinc, deficient in protein, and you're just like supplementing around those deficiencies and hoping that's the same thing as food. And if you are being stubborn and not wanting to make that dietary switch for whatever ethical or moral reason, I don't know, like, 
if there's something that big, that elephant in the room, mm. and you take holy basil and think that that's going to cure everything that ails you, I just, I don't think that that's going to be the case. Or again, like we could, not to pick on the vegans, we could make the same argument. If you're like, Paleo you know, the, the follower, keto, Dr. Burke follower, ultra fan, and you think carbs are evil, and that's the big thing that you need to overcome and like reintroduce carbs and get over the idea that carbs are evil. If that's standing in your way, I don't know how much these herbs are really going to do for you. But this conversation is more for the people who are genuinely trying to manage their shit. They're genuinely open minded and trying to tinker with things and trying to like figure out and call out their own biases. And they're really just trying to do things that are healthy for them, but they need a bit of help. Because the world we live in is crazy and batshit and stressful. Like this, this is a conversation yeah. for those folks, I think. Well, it's really interesting. And I was just kidding a little bit about Oh, like this could fix your marriage. Um, I was being sarcastic in case anyone didn't couldn't tell. But if you're a first time listener, <laughs> right? But I will say the way I think of adaptogens, just because I typically how they've worked for me and how I see them working for other people, is I see that they can kind of take the edge off a bit. Um, sometimes maybe more for some people compared to others, but that's how they've always felt for me. Um, so like for me, I've historically, when I've taken adaptogens, I felt like they definitely provide a sense of wellness, but it's subtle. And then when I stop taking them, I notice more of a negative shift. Like sometimes when I'm on it, it takes a while to build for me. And I'm like, oh, I I mean, I feel pretty good, but I just want to make sure like I need this. And then when I go off of it, I have more of a dip that I can notice. Um, Whereas I think some other people might notice more of an impact quickly. That's the thing about adaptogens. They can be, they can take a little bit of time to work for some people and work more quickly for others. Yeah. But the way I always see it is they take some sort of edge off um, stress, um, which again, helps build resiliency throughout your day. Um, but like you said, I, I don't think it's going to be this magic bullet that takes the stress away from your stressful life if um, you are yeah. kind of living through some harder times. Yeah, I, I think that you described it well in two senses. So one, I think that your response is very typical, I would say probably 80 or 90% of the time we should expect adaptogens to behave the way you described in mm. the sense of like the, the way I joke about it with patients and students all the time in FODMAP Freedom is this is not a group of herbs where you take it on a Tuesday and then Wednesday you're like, oh, this was great. It's usually very subtle and it takes time to build and it's going to take weeks or months to really notice anything because it's like it's working on some really deep shit, honestly, like your ability to cope with stress, your mental health, like the health of your immune system, these sorts of things. And mm. what I usually see happen is somebody starts on an adaptogen. And the first like week or two on on a new herb, I'm always just asking, are you tolerating it? Yes or no? Like, do we have mm. just a general sense? Can we keep doing this? Then past that, we're going to give it a little while longer, like weeks or months. And almost always, 
the indication for people is they'll follow up with me or they'll check in or come to a Q&A or something. And they'll be like, you know, I think it's working. Because something stressful happened. Because hashtag human life, right? Something stressful happened. And I realized I was able to cope with it or tolerate or like bounce back so much better than if the exact same thing happened to me six months ago. Hmm. So that's usually what people observe is like some stressful thing happens and they're able to cope better than they thought they would have otherwise. Um, Sometimes too with these, because they help with resiliency and your reserve, uh, sometimes people will notice more energy. But again, it's not like you take it on a Tuesday and then Wednesday you have energy. It's over the course of weeks or months. And I just, I remember this one FODMAP Freedom student who he had tried ashwagandha before and didn't feel like it was for him. So he kind of gave up on the adaptogen idea. So mm-hmm. we pivoted and had him try Ulithro. And he didn't notice anything huge in the beginning. But then maybe a month or two later, he was telling me, oh my God, I was walking on my college campus. And I just like, I realized I had pep in my step. Like I just, Hmm. I had some energy that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And that's when it clicked. And I realized the Lithro is working for me. So Hmm. yeah, it's, it's usually like stress resiliency or energy that people will notice as they take these herbs. Um, Every once in a blue moon, like maybe 10% of the time, people will take it on a Tuesday. And then like Thursday or Friday, I'm getting an email or a portal message saying, this is the best thing ever. I love it so much. Holy crap, this is great. But that's not the norm. So don't go into this expecting that kind of response. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. And I know we've talked about this. And sometimes I just honestly forget that maca is an adaptogen, but I have been taking maca. Uh, for hormone regulation, because my cycles were really long for a while, which could have just been like a delayed reaction to everything settling down postpartum. But I had a few cycles that were like 50 days, 45 days. And I was just like, this is so weird. I need to, I'm going to try maca just to see, because I've had historically had some success with clients taking maca root for hormone regulation. And I definitely notice more with maca than maybe ashwagandha, some energy increases more quickly upon taking it. I might have even told you, I feel like when I took it, I felt, you know, maybe like a 20% uptick in just energy and mental clarity through the day fairly quickly upon taking it. And I was really surprised because I was kind of in it for the long haul, so to speak, and a lot of my hor- hormones shifted quicker than I anticipated. Like maybe the second cycle I was already seeing yeah. smaller, like more normal cycles, 30-day cycles versus the 45-day cycles. And I was expecting it to be maybe at least three months before I'd get some effects. And there could have been multiple factors involved too. So I I can't say for sure it was just the maca, but I was really surprised with that in terms of the energy increase that I saw with it. Um, but yeah, that's my most recent experiment with a adaptogen. Um, but yeah, it, it, it surprised me how quickly that one worked for me from, and I wasn't anticipating necessarily a huge energy boost. Um, but that was a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think what you're what you're describing here is 
you go into these things expecting it to take weeks or months. Mm. And then every now and then you will find that you're pleasantly surprised. And that is just like a nice thing. Versus right. again, we don't want you going into this taking ashwagandha for a week and then being like, oh my God, I still have anxiety. This isn't working for me. It doesn't work. And then giving mm -hmm. up on it prematurely. So go into it expecting it to be more of a long a long game kind of strategy, but leave room to be pleasantly surprised if you do notice an overnight difference. Well, and before we get too deep, too, do we want to do you want to define an adaptogen? Ooh, um, I know. Sure. I know we're and maybe people kind of generally know what they are. But you know how we get, we'll get like 50 minutes in and be like, we didn't define what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, that's, uh, that's what you get. <laughs> right. Well, we're <laughs> the opposite. We're the antithesis of the podcast you listened to that probably had a nice outline, but it was, was probably it was boring, you know? Well, it wasn't boring because his guest was Lucy Mailing. Oh, and of course, cool. she like knocked it out of the park. So and and he was good too. So it, it was actually a very good listen, but it was just a very different experience. Right. Than Agreed. what we what we have. Hold on one second. My computer was waking out for some reason. Um yeah, so let's see if I can find the actual definition from the man himself here. Um I think I'll just kind of read this opening paragraph. I I'll give you my loose definition and then I'll see what David Winston has to say. So in my mind, an adaptogen is something that can help the body cope with stress in a non-specific, broad kind of way. Mm -hmm. So we might mean stress from the stance of psychological stress. We could mean stress in the form of an injury, right? An injury is stressful for the body. It is a stressor on the body. Mm -hmm. um, an illness, an infection, a disease, uh, nutritional inadequacy, like these things are stressful for the body to deal with. And adaptogens can help you cope with stressors as kind of like a really big blanket statement. And they do so in a normalizing fashion, which means it, it's kind of this effect where if something's too low, adaptogens will generally bring it up. And if something is too high, they will bring it down. And it could be the same exact plant doing these two different things for two different people because mm -hmm. adaptogens have a normalizing effect on the body. They're not intrinsically stimulating or downregulating. It's kind of like I, I've even made the argument on Instagram before that prokinetics, which I love to talk about for gut function, are like the adaptogens of the gut. They're regulating motility. They're not stimulating it. They're not slowing it down. So it's different than a laxative or an antidiarrheal. They're normalizing. So I think it's kind of a keen to the prokinetic conversation. But um, here's, here's what David Winston had to say in the intro of this book. He said, we all deal with stress every day. Yeah. And our bodies strive to adapt and keep balanced and healthy. There's a category of herbs called adaptogens that help the body adapt to stress, support normal metabolic processes, and restore balance. They increase the body's resistance to psychological, biological, emotional, and environmental stressors and promote normal physiological function. Just the best the best I could word it. From the man himself. Yeah. From the man, the the yeah. adaptogen man. Yeah, well again, he his his book is one of the 
one of the better ones on adaptogens, I think. Um, but anyhow, let's now solid 20 minutes into the episode, let's talk about some of these here herbs. And I'll start by saying there are a lot of herbs that might fall into this category. And we don't have time or the bandwidth to talk about all of them. Um, again, like the way that David Winston breaks it down in his book, for example, he breaks it down as confirmed adaptogens, probable adaptogens, and possible or potential adaptogens. Hmm. So like the ones that we know, so like ashwagandha, we know for sure ashwagandha is one of the the most well-known adaptogens. We have so many studies on this. We know it's an adaptogen for sure, 100%. And then there are herbs like astragalus that a lot of people would, a lot of herbalists would consider an adaptogen, but we maybe don't have quite as much research supporting that role. Mm -hmm. And then there's something like, um, well, I'm, I'm trying to think of like the different categories that he lists, but there are some that maybe they have some adaptogen like qualities, but we're not Mm. Again, we're still not at that level of evidence to really say it's an adaptogen across the board. So yeah. I'm going to choose well, just the, oh, sorry, I, I was going to oh. say, I'm going to choose the couple that I think are most relevant for our listeners that are also like confirmed for sure adaptogens. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say before we jump in too, I don't know if it'd be helpful because I know we have an episode called, I think it's called Herbs for Stress, and it might be about Nervines. This is super old. Yeah. I've I've Season sent one. it like maybe episode 40 or 50 some some somewhere in there. Um but how would you cuz what I remember I don't know if we've had any on-screen or on-air conversations about nervines compared to adaptogens. Uh. But I know that I know you've said that they might do similar things in the body or maybe I'm misremembering that. But t- just tell me, let's talk yeah. through some of the the similarities and maybe differences between adaptogens and nervines. I think that'd be interesting for people too. Yeah, yeah. And this, God, if we have any official like herbalists listening, I hope that I do this conversation justice, by the way. I'm an aspiring herbalist, but I, I don't think I, I have the accolade to say that quite yet. Um, what I would say is... So nervines are nervous system tonics, or they're like, they're herbs that are good for the nervous system. So chamomile, lavender, catnip, things like that. Um, If you think about what promoting nervous system health might look like, we could start thinking about the balance between parasympathetic rest and digest versus fight or flight kind of sympathetic tone. If we see nervous system health and then we go to that autonomic balance, nervines can be good for stress in the sense that they help nourish and tonify and and care for the nervous system. But I don't think they're going to have as much of a direct impact on something like cortisol or stress chemistry or adrenaline or, Mm -hmm. you know, hormones. Like I think that their effect is oftentimes a bit more isolated to the nervous system Versus an adaptogen, sort of the whole idea with adaptogens is that they can affect every single tissue in the body and help restore balance and nourish and protect all of these different tissues. Um, And I think that nerve, or I'm sorry, I think that adaptogens are great for the nervous system and that they can help balance that like parasympathetic versus sympathetic um, kind of 
imbalance that a lot of us have. But I think that their effects are not isolated to that. Mm. I think that adaptogens are probably a bit more broad versus nervides, which are a little bit more targeted for the nervous system. At least that's how I tend to think of them. Yeah. But both types of herbs can be really good for stress. Right. Right. Awesome. Yeah. But yeah, go check those episodes out. I think we ended up doing two episodes on yeah. the nervines. We probably we, need to redo. We covered those a bunch in there point. too, like some nervines. Sometimes when all, um, when I'm working with a client and we're debating on doing a ner- like doing some nervines, sometimes we'll refer to that and I'll say like, do any of the symptoms jump out at you? Yeah, that so we could pick some some nervine herbs that might yeah. be a slightly better fit for them. Um, yeah. Yeah, are any of them calling your name? And you could right. kind of go through this episode with a similar lens. Like, when you hear what these herbs are good for individually, do any of them really stand out to you, jump out? Do you think, oh, man, like three out of the four things she just said, I deal with. Wow, that might be the thing for me. Um, so yeah, so without further ado, we mentioned one a couple of times, and I think it would be a good place to start. If for no other reason, too, it starts with the letter A. So it feels like we're going in order if we start with ashwagandha. Um, mm. Now, I think you had said that you had taken ashwagandha personally, right? And that it was generally a positive experience, and you think that it was helping on some level. Yeah, I mean, I think I've definitely taken more everything but the kitchen sink type blends before that have maybe Uh, ashwagandha as the biggest element. I definitely have taken standalone ashwagandha before too, but I would say more of my history has been some of the blends, like some of the more popular blends, I would say. Um, Yeah, but generally cortisol manager or something like that. Yeah, there was one that was like a tincture and I can't remember the name of it to be honest. Um, but I believe it was mainly adaptogens. There could have been some nervine, like a, a nervine or two in there too. But again, I generally felt that that, you know, a month or two in, I was feeling pretty good all around. And then I did notice a big drop off when I missed a couple, like missed like three or four weeks of it. Cause I was like, ah, like I feel pretty good on this. I just want to see like what happens when I stop. I might've done yeah. it for like three months. Um, and I definitely noticed uh, some negative effects upon stopping. Usually, again, I think just general feeling of calm. Um, I don't. That might be a weird way to describe it, but just feeling calmer. So. Um, again, slight energy increases. I would say, um, and that those would be the main things. I. I would say maybe I, it helps with, I think, again, I, I generally respond pretty well sleep-wise to adaptogens as well. Um, but yeah, the, those are the biggest benefits. But yeah, I've definitely taken ashwagandha a number of times, more historically as blends, so it's a little bit harder. Yeah. Because sometimes the blends are a little bit lower dosages because they're blends. Yeah, um, you get kind of the synergy effect from them. Yeah, and it, it it also maybe muddies the water to know, you know, am I more responsive to ashwagandha versus uh, lemon balm or whatever else yeah. is in the blend? So, well, and I will say, most of the time, like if you were to work with an herbalist, it's it's pretty rare for herbalists to give you a single herb as mm-hmm. a standalone thing. 
So in herbal medicine, you're almost always going to get like a blended tea or a blended tincture or some sort of combo effect. Um, but I, I also think that these four adaptogens that we're really going to focus on today, I think that they would make great standalone items for people who just want to like go to Whole Foods or Sprouts or whatever, pick up a bottle with the name of the herb that we're saying today and just try it out as a single. I do think that all all four of these would be totally fine and very effective as singles. Um, mm. So yeah, but um, so ashwagandha, um, well, first off, it's it's very widely used in like Ayurvedic traditional Indian medicine. And it's sometimes called Indian ginseng, although it's not a relative of the ginseng plant to the best of my knowledge, at least. But it is, um, it's, it's a tonic, it helps kind of build you up and, and build the health of the tissues. Again, the idea with adaptogens is they affect everything in some way, shape or form. But saying that as a blanket statement doesn't help you narrow down which one is appropriate for you. So I'll try to laser in on the things that we know about each herb. And one of the claims to fame for ashwagandha, I think, is that it's really great for anxiety in mm. particular. So if you tend to skew a bit more anxious, I even wonder if this would be helpful for like OCD kind of that like anxiety adjacent stuff. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, I could see it being helpful there. But we know that ashwagandha has this anxiolytic effect, which is really, really nice. And to your point, it's calming and grounding and like soothing most of the time. <laughs> Now, what I will say, there's always that little asterisk next to everything we say where we're going to talk about what happens most of the time, and there's always the wild cards out there. Sometimes, not frequently, maybe 5% of the time, every now and then, people will feel very stimulated by ashwagandha. Hmm. And I don't know if I've really pinpointed what it is about the person or the plant that does this, but if you're one of the people who's taken ashwagandha and it gave you like weird insomnia where you felt wrapped up by it, just know that that is a thing that can happen. I don't remember. That might have been why the guy I referenced earlier didn't love it. I, mm -hmm. I forget the reason why he didn't land on it. Uh, but for the majority of people, like 95% plus of people, I think that ashwagandha is very calming, anxiolytic, like anti-anxiety. And it, it can be really helpful for grounding you mm -hmm. in addition to helping your tissues return to homeostasis and balancing the tissues. Um the other thing I would say that ashwagandha really has above and beyond the other adaptogens we're going to talk about today is that it's really great for hormones. Mm. I'm talking thyroid hormone. It can, it can help with T4 to T3 conversion. It can help normalize TSH if you're a bit hypothyroid. Um, you know, I, I have had some cases where somebody didn't want to take thyroid medication and their TSH was in like the four or five range. And we started ashwagandha and then it dropped back down to normal range with ashwagandha alone. I'm not saying that happens all the time, but I have seen that happen. Um, so thyroid hormone as well as sex hormone. So for example, I forget, because again, I was referencing some of my books before we got on. I forget which book it was, but one of these two books next to me said that uh, both sexual desire and fertility can be enhanced by ashwagandha in both men and women. But I will say kind of classically, it's thought of as, as especially wonderful for male hormones. Hmm. Cool. So yeah, hormones I have, and anxiety. I have another question about 
ashwagandha specifically. And this has come up with a few people. There was one guy I worked with that swore that one form of ashwagandha, there's like a sensoril, there's different maybe strains of it. Um, I don't know if there's a strain you particularly like, or again, maybe it's just individual. Um, but that's something that I know have has come up with clients before where they try one brand and it has a different effect than another, another brand. And maybe it's like they they were taking one and one was cheaper and they're like, oh, I'll just try the the other brand. And then they realized that they didn't have the same effect. Um, I do think that can happen. I I know that there are different types of ashwagandha. So I, I know, for example, um, oh gosh, I think it's Nature's Way. Mm-hmm. Like historically, I've used Nature's Way when somebody wants to do capsules because that one... It, it tests pretty well with like independent third-party testing. Uh, Consumer Lab did a breakdown of ashwagandha products and that one had like more of the active constituents in it than a lot of mm. the other products. And it was a good price point. I don't remember if it was one of the fancier extracts or not. Right. Um, that is a thing. I can't say that I'm very versed on that. Right. The one that uh, that I can speak to, and I know you can now too, is with maca. I've said for years and years that the Feminescence Maca Harmony products are far superior when when you're taking Maca for hormone regulation purposes. Hmm. I think that those products are phenomenal. I've had multiple patients who have like PCOS or irregular cycles or infertility issues, and they've tried Maca before, and they just get like regular powdered Maca from, you know, Mountain Rose Herbs or Amazon or wherever. And it didn't work for them. And then I insisted, no, you got to try the Maca Harmony products. And then like within a month or two, they're like, whoa, this is really crazy. So yeah. that is an example where they're they're doing something different. They're extracting it and blending it differently. And I do think that that makes a huge difference with the Maca products. I don't know if I've played enough a- around with ashwagandha to say that the same thing happens with ashwagandha, but it might. Mm. Yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. And again, I'm sure there's just unique things. We're all unique little snowflakes. So like, uh, I think we have to take into account how we might um, get affected by different things differently. One thing that's crazy about me is that uh, I have the stimulating effect from CBD. Like people take CBD to sleep. Okay. Never been able to sleep with CBD. I'm wide awake. Isn't that funny? Isn't that weird? Yeah, it, it again, like definitely out of the norm, but right. you know, you you observe that and you go, huh, that's interesting. And then you kind of move on and you know right. not to take CBD, or at least right. certainly not near bedtime. I'll say the same thing happens. We would have mentioned it in the Nervine episode, but the same thing can happen with valerian. Valerian yeah. is one of the more sedating herbs, and a lot of people take it for sleep, and it's famous for kind of like knocking you out. And there's like that weird five or 10% of people who get really stimulated by valerian Mm. and it's the damnedest thing. And I don't, I don't know if I have a good way to predict that. I'm pretty sure it was Thomas, the herbalist that we had on uh, way back in the beginning of season one, my herbalist buddy. And I think it was in his book. He said that people who are already like super in sympathetic dominance, fight or flight mode, those people tend to be the ones that are really hyped up and and um, 
like energized in a bad way from Valerian Mm. versus people who are a bit more balanced to begin with parasympathetic wise, like they're more likely to get the sedating or relaxing effect from Valerian. So all I know is when I, when I take Valerian, it's too much. It feels like I got knocked over the head by a brick. (laughs) So I'm the the opposite. Like I am out. I'm out cold if I took Valerian. There are a lot of herbs that are relaxing, so like ashwagandha, right. but they're not sedative in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, valerian and California poppy are two of the few herbs that are really, really sedating. And they really should come with a cautionary note not to operate heavy machinery when you take them. Yeah. Um, and maybe they do. I don't know. I haven't looked at enough bottles to say. Um, the other thing I thought might be kind of useful or fun to do as we're talking about some of these herbs is um, I'm just going to read you like the little teeny snippets from these two books and see if that stimulates any further conversation about ashwagandha, for example. So in, um, in David Winston's book, he, and these are just primary actions or primary applications he lists off. So he says of ashwagandha, calming, nourishing, ah, relieves muscle pain, Immune amphoteric, which means it has a balancing, modulating effect on the immune system, and reproductive tonic. I think the only one we didn't hit based off of that was the, like, relieves muscle pain portion of it. Uh, I don't remember why that is, if it's anti-inflammatory or anti-spasmodic or what that might be. But briefly, and then I'll open the floor for conversation. Poor Amy's, like, (laughs) waiting to say something. Um, here's what Thomas easily says in his book of ashwagandha. He says, an important herb from Ayurvedic medicine, ashwagandha is a nervine and adrenal tonic that helps anxiety, depression, exhaustion, and poor muscle tone. It's an adaptogen and reduces the effects of stress while promoting energy and vitality. It's used as a supporting herb for recovering from debilitating diseases. It is effective for treating sexual dysfunction caused by stress. It's also an effective anti-inflammatory that can relieve symptoms associated with arthritis pain. Ashwagandha helps boost the conversion of T4 to T3. So, okay. So at least per Thomas's notes here, the relieving pain quality of ashwagandha is probably because it has anti-inflammatory qualities. At least that's what I got from that. Yeah. Neat stuff. Yeah. yeah. Neat stuff. And again, I've, I've used standalone ashwagandha with clients with a lot of success too. So I've, I've historically really liked it. I was telling, I was telling Nikki before we started and we were sort of agreeing that it's the gateway into adaptogens. It's the gateway herb. Um, It it is. It's a really nice starter adaptogen for a lot of people. And the nice and the weird thing about adaptogens too, is because they help the body with stress in a very broad way kind of blanket statement sort of way it it does i think it kind of opens the door that anybody could try any of these herbs and and possibly do quite well on them i don't know how granular we need to get if there is a decision to be made between holy basil versus mm-hmm. ashwagandha versus whatever like we might we might just all benefit from all of these in some weird wet, roundabout way but it's fun to noodle on the differences anyway and get yeah. nerdy about it. So, and I know that that's what our listeners are craving. Well, they want I, the specifics. And two, I mean, I, I think we harp on this a lot 
there's a level of experimentation with all this stuff too, because again, and weirdly, like I think for most people, if they try ashwagandha, it's going to work really well. That's why we're calling it the gateway herb. Um, Now, again, you could try another herb and just see if you have a similar effect or if there's any additional benefit and determine if it makes sense to like maybe take two or again, like maybe switch and see if you notice a difference just from an experimental standpoint. If you're feeling pretty good on the ashwagandha, you probably don't want to do that. But, you know, all everything you put in your body to some degree there's a little bit of some experimentation if you're taking a supplement, like to d- decide if it's working or not, and you can maneuver around. But I-, I don't think that there's a high level of risk with any of these herbs, unless you're no. doing really weird stuff. Um, no, it, I think they're all really, really safe. It's just a matter of which one you try. And again, are you patient enough to let the thing do its job and yeah. show you what it's capable of? I think that's oftentimes uh, the trick here. Do you remember when I was pregnant asking about herbs and you were like, there was one herb where it was like, don't, don't take vaginally. Like it was a really weird, like no one would do that, you know? Yeah. I don't (laughs) remember what the herb was. You'd be surprised. People get real creative for sure. Right. Um, But it it cracked me up. If you ever doubt the creativity of your fellow human beings, just talk to somebody who works in an ER. Yeah. It's and true. they will tell you the weird things that people shove up their butts and the weird injuries that people somehow acquire <laughs> that they see every day in the ER. I, okay, here, this is tangentially related to ashwagandha. And you'll find out at the end of the story. Okay, ready? We're going on a ride. So I remember a friend of mine in grad school, uh, his friend, I think was an ER doctor, maybe a nurse, I forget. But he had a friend who worked, I believe, in the ER. And one of the stories that he brought up, I remember, was that uh, somebody, a woman came in with a potato in her <laughs> vagina. Did I tell you the story? What? Maybe at some point. <laughs> I don't know if we did it on the podcast, I but I remember, I remember you telling me this. Yeah. This is wild. Potato in the vagina. And it had been up there long enough that it was starting to sprout uh, and like grow <laughs> roots and stuff. And it was sprouting into found its new home. God knows. Yes, it found its new home. Well, if you think about it, right? Potatoes usually grow in dark, yeah. damp conditions. And the vagina is arguably dark and damp. So I guess what happened with this poor woman, um, she had a prolapsing uterus. Mm. And it it was this moment of like, oh my God, I have to put something up there to hold my uterus in. And, you know, this is probably a horrifying story about American healthcare. Like the fact that she didn't go get surgery to fix the prolapsing right. uterus. And she literally thought to put a potato in her vagina to hold it in place <laughs> and see if that worked. So, yeah, she had a potato in her vagina and it was sprouting and growing all over the place and probably caused a lot more harm. Um, but I say this is tangentially related to ashwagandha. Are you ready to come full circle? <laughs> the Wait, is... Are you saying the potato in the vagina is is a? Uh... It's related to ashwagandha. Okay. You know why? Okay, I'm I'm ready for this. Okay. Okay, buckle up, because potatoes and ashwagandha are both nightshades. Oh hey! Boom. Wow! Boom! Look at you go! And this is worth noting. Now I I have seen people who don't do well with tomatoes or potatoes or like certain nightshades, and I've seen them do just fine with ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say 
that you can't take this if you have a nightshade issue or like a sensitivity to tomatoes or something. It's just something to be aware of because there are people who do get joint pain or problems from nightshades and you just might want to keep your wits about you when you introduce this herb just in case that nightshady quality messes with your system in a similar way. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's really the only caution that I would say Mm -hmm. with this. I mean, the dosing of it can go really high too. I mean, like I said, I usually use the nature's way capsules just because it it's widely available, it's reasonably priced, it's pretty strong, it passed all the testing that I wanted it to pass. Um, But you know, looking like Thomas says on here for for run of the mill capsules, this is not going to apply to nature's way, usually I'll do like one or two capsules twice a day for that product. And even that's a little ambitious. But if you just had regular run of the mill powdered ashwagandha root, he says you could take two to six capsules three times a day, which is a pretty high dose. And similarly, if you were using the powder and mixing it in milk or doing something like that, you could easily take, you know, 20 or 30 grams of the stuff per day Whoa. and do well with that. So the sky's the limit on the dosing. You yeah. could take it as a tincture. You could do it as a, as again, like a golden milk kind of thing, like mixing it in milk, which is more traditional. You could do it as capsules. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of options for ashwagandha and and you're not going to overdose it anytime soon, as far as I can mm. tell. Does it taste bad? I, I don't think I've ever tasted the powder before. I'm trying to think of the last time I tried the pl- the powder. Um, it smells a little bit. The, the name loosely translates to something like the smell and strength of a horse. <laughs> so the smell... Might be slightly off-putting, but I don't think that the taste is bad beyond the little bit of horse smell to it, if that mm. makes sense. If you plug your nose, you wouldn't know. Okay. Probably. Um, but anyhow, so that's that's the story of ashwagandha. Um, now, we call this one the gateway herb, and I think it's a great gateway. Um, probably the second adaptogen that's like my other number two go-to, and I use it probably about as frequently as ashwagandha, is Siberian ginseng, or uh, also known as elithro. Now, I don't, so I don't think you've taken it yourself. Have you used this at all with clients, Amy? Um, I mean, not that I can think of super in-depth, unless there's like a, a product that I've used in combination historically. There, there might be one one adaptogenic blend that I use that has that has it in there, if I remember right. Um, good. It's one of my faves. Again, it's probably my number. It's tied for number one with ashwagandha as far as the the adaptogens that I use and recommend. Probably. Um, again, it's it's just it's nice for so many things, and it's very talented. It's one of the most widely researched herbs. I I forget the exact story, but basically. Um, in the 80s, the Soviet Union was having a lot of their Olympic athletes take Ulithro. And then mm. I forget what year it was. The USSR went to the Olympics. It was either like 84 or 88. And they kicked ass and just swept the Olympics. And basically the whole world turned and went, huh, what are they taking? Can we take some too? And it turned out that like, they were taking Ulithro. And that sparked this huge storm of research on this plant to a point where it's one of the best researched plants on planet Earth to this day because 
people were so compelled by the performance in the Olympics. And, you know, that being said, a lot of the research has looked at Ulithro's ability to increase things like stamina and strength and physical performance and like athletic performance. So it's, it's nice for that purpose. Um, I really like it also for boosting immunity and before all of the autoimmune people run away, don't worry. Like I've used it with autoimmune folk plenty of time, but I'm talking about the people where their white blood cell count is a little bit meh, Mm, you know, it, it, instead of being in that nice five to eight range, maybe they're in like the threes or fours or fives and, you know, people who get sick more often, or when they do get sick, they don't bounce back very quickly. And their immune systems kind of just like all the time. Um, You could certainly use things like elderberry and echinacea preventatively in that population. But Ulithro, I think is phenomenal for this. And I know for me personally, I had a white blood cell count that was kind of like that was like hovering in like the four ish range for years and years and years. And I just kind of observed it and thought, ah, that's a little bit crappy. And I, I didn't think too much of it for a long time. And what's funny is I always would look at the differential and I would notice that my lymphocytes, my lymphocyte percentage was a little bit higher than I wanted. So being stuck in the mentality I was in at the time in grad school, I was convinced I had leaky gut. That was Mm. 100% of my problem. I had IBSD and diarrhea and bloating every day because I had leaky gut. And that's what all of these smart people were talking about in the functional medicine courses I was taking. So that was it. And so when I saw what looked like higher lymphocytes on my CBC differential, uh, I thought, oh, yeah, it's higher lymphocytes because I've got leaky gut and it's causing autoimmunity. It's causing this and that. And that was my hypothesis. And it wasn't until years later that I reexamined my CBC and I realized you know what? No. (laughs) So when you look at a CBC, there's the differential and they give you the percentages of all the white counts Mm -hmm. and they give you the absolute numbers. So I was only looking at percentages and normally I want neutrophils around 60%, lymphocytes around 30%. And mine were always more like 45, 45. They were Mm -hmm. tied. I was like, Oh, it's because I have too many lymphocytes. Well, no, I looked at my numbers and I kind of looked at them in a different way. And I realized, no, it's that my neutrophils are kind of low. Mm, And it's it's, messing up the ratio. Yes, it's messing with the ratio. It's messing with the percentages. And my total white count is a little on the low side because my neutrophils are a little bit low. And so I, I made that observation. But then it was in recent years that I happened to experiment with a blend that had a lot of ulithro in it. And I happened to do some routine lab work and my CBC looked the best it had looked possibly ever. Mm. And I, I eventually put two and two together that it was because of the Ulithro. And now it's just kind of my, my bestie. I keep it in the mix. It's, you know, I take a capsule or two most days of Ulithro. And I really think that it helps my immune system. What's funny is I don't necessarily feel different. So Hmm. I never had that moment of like, oh, I have more energy or, oh, I handled that better than I thought I would. Because honestly, I'm cool as a cucumber in times of stress anyway. So I don't have as much opportunity to have that epiphany. But looking at my blood work over the years, there's a very clear pattern that when I started taking Ulithro, my CBC looks fabulous. Yeah. And so huge fan of this plant. 
Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that about your uh, your uh, percentages being off. It, it is weird sometimes when you, I think that the stool testing situation can get very weird too. looking at the percentages uh, or looking at the absolutes instead of the percentages. Sometimes that can really throw you off. Um, I don't know. It's kind of strange. I, I, and I think that that's why there's so much more variance in something like a GI map or a GI effects mm-hmm. where they're doing quant PCR and they're like counting up the bacteria, but right. there's, we both have hypothesized that there's not a lot of control for like how much stool that you put in the cup and normalizing that when it arrives at the lab. Yeah. Um, versus something like ombre where they report everything as a percentage. Um, right. I think that, yeah, that's, that is spot on. Um, let me redo two quick passages. I guess, yes, please. I, I feel very, I goofy. feel like I'm at like church and, uh, <laughs> this is like herbal church, uh, <laughs> herbal church. Can we, <laughs> if it wouldn't deter some of our audience, like I, I already decided that we're naming this one. Y'all need adaptogens, but I'm so tempted to name this episode herbal church. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> that would be right on par with the weird shit that we do. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. Um, okay, David Winston just says adaptogen and immune tonic. So that's kind of boring, David. You could do better, please, and thank you with that one. <laughs> we'll send him a note. Yeah, we'll we'll pick it. Um, okay, and then Thomas says, Eulithro has had more than 3,000 studies performed on it, more than any other herb in the world. See, told you. It was first the first plant identified as an adaptogen by Russian scientists. Not only does it help the body cope better with stress, but it also increases endurance and stimulates the brain to improve concentration. Soviet researchers found that Eulithro improved athletic performance, aided cosmonauts in preventing space sickness, caused secretaries to make fewer mistakes, and helped workers have fewer sick days. In other words, Eulithro enhances endurance, immunity, brain function, and general good health. Eulithro is one of the more stimulating adaptogens and should be used short term. I'm actually going to disagree with Thomas on that note. And I I realize that's a bold move because I think Thomas is a brilliant herbalist and I'm still a fledgling herbalist. But I, in my experience taking it and listening to a lot of other herbalists talk about this plant now, including David Winston, usually Eulithro is considered more neutral like it's not relaxing but it's not stimulating either um i forgot that he said that thomas is one of the one of the if not the only herbalist that i've ever heard claim that eulithro is stimulating Mm. so i actually that's like the one and only point probably that i would disagree with thomas on um i think that it can help boost energy but it's I think it's perfectly fine for longer term use. And I don't find it particularly stimulating in myself or in others. Yeah. But, you know, but yeah, it, you know, cognitive performance, physical performance, immune enhancement. It's just, it's a really nice, well-rounded herb. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe if there's a degree of anxiety and maybe some hormonal stuff, think ashwagandha. Yeah. If you're kind of hoping to maybe boost cognitive performance, a boost immune function, um, perf- Maybe like performance in general. Perform- like if right. you're into athletics and you want to enhance like physical 
uh, performance. Yeah. Although I will say back to the cognitive idea, I'm going to put a monkey wrench in that one with the next one, if I okay. may. So yeah. you just segued us beautifully into the next Perfect. I, so I knew exactly what, knew. what I was doing. Knew. <laughs> so holy basil, also known as Tulsi, I would say mm. is the herb. Well, the next two actually both, but Tulsi is really wonderful for brain function and like brain fog and that sort of stuff. Um, and to a point, I actually want to start with Thomas's bit here because I thought that he worded this really well. Um, and I made some notes even as I've gone to seminars. So Thomas says of holy basil, holy basil is heavily used in Ayurvedic medicine. In Western herbalism, it's considered an adaptogen and general tonic. It protects the heart from stress, lowers blood pressure and cholesterol levels, and stabilizes blood sugar levels. It reduces feelings of stress and reduces excessive immune response in conditions like hay fever allergic rhinitis and asthma. Now that to me says maybe some anti-inflammatory or even antihistamine qualities, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, it enhances digestion, cerebral circulation, memory, concentration, and mental acuity. So pretty darn neat. Um, It's, it's also said to lighten your like spirits and your, your kind of mental, Mm. um, Yeah, like mentally. And I thought that this was a neat quote, too. So I pulled this from another thing I was reading. This was an herbalist I hadn't heard of, Chris Bernard. And he said that holy basil brings me back into my body from the overactive vata part of me. When there's a whirlwind of ideas and planning for future projects, when I'm gardening, but not even there, lost in my head, it brings me back into my body. Mental clarity, yes, but a clarity of the present moment and a harpening of all the senses. I see and hear more sharply. I feel the sun on my skin, the weight of my body. I'm more in tune with my intuition. Things slow down a bit. I thought that was a really cool way to describe holy basil. Yeah, totally. I I feel, and I don't, this is something that that might not be true, but I, I feel like I remember some people or some movement trying to kind of get people to switch from coffee to Tulsi like it could be a good alternative Mm. if you're trying to wean I don't know if if Tulsi tea does it have a little caffeine I didn't think so I don't not that Um, I'm aware of at least but I know again like some of my clients that are trying to reduce caffeine we've suggested or I've suggested Tulsi tea before um and maybe I just read something and it's it's stuck in my brain somewhere of someone talking about how it's a good alternative, but I know I've used it with clients before when they're trying to just sort of get away from the stimulating yeah. type things, yep. but could still get some benefits. Um, I, th- from I think a, that's, go ahead. That's a great recommendation actually. Sorry, I cut you off. Um, yeah, no, but it's, if anything, it's actually considered to be relaxing and it, it has a little bit of a nervine quality to it as well. Mm. So I think, you know, getting somebody off of or transitioned over from something that's stimulating and, you know, caffeinating them up versus like giving them mental clarity, but in a healthier way and maybe tonifying their nervous system a bit and connecting them with their body. Like that just sounds like a really good idea. Um, I'll say too, we could get into like the energetics of herbalism a bit another time, but 
Tulsi is a very aromatic plant, which means that there are like volatile compounds and oils that that are part of its its um, how it works. And oftentimes, aromatic herbs like that are said to be good for mental health and also digestion, which is interesting. So it has a little bit of that aromatic quality, and it's said to be good for stagnant digestion, which makes me think of like indigestion, bloating kind of stuff. And to that point, one of the things that David Winston has in his book is a bit here. He says, holy basil is a carminative, parentheses, relieves digestive upset that is useful for relieving gas, nausea, and vomiting. Hmm. Kind of neato for our listeners. Now think about how many of our listeners have not only gas and like stagnant digestion and motility issues, but also brain fog, low Mm. energy, just kind of bleh, and maybe their blood sugar is doing wonky things. Like this is a great herb for all three of those applications. Yeah, love it. And it makes a nice tea. You could take it capsule form. I know um, New Chapter has a good, uh, I think it's liquid capsules. I've used New Chapter's capsules before many times. Uh, But I've also had people just go get like a Tulsi tea and you could buy it in bulk for pretty low price from a vendor like Mountain Rose Herbs or something like that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a really wonderful herb. And here's a little bit more from David Winston. He says, mild adaptogen, anxiolytic, so good for anxiety, reduces blood sugar, uh, neurotrophic, which means it's like nourishing and good for the brain. And um, and immune amphoteric, which again means that it's like balancing and nourishing for the immune system. So pretty talented plant. Hey, oh, we love it. Holy basil. They call Let it me holy some... basil for a reason, folks. You heard it here first. You heard it at Herb Church. It's the holy <laughs> basil. <laughs> I'm also so tempted to hold another art contest and tell people to send us their pictures of like you and me preaching at Herb Church. Oh my and I, God. I could be holding a big wad of ashwagandha root and oh my God. you could be holding some. We should make every episode an art contest, by the way, and then we could just flood our Instagram stories with the art contests. Oh my gosh. We did Love get it. at least one submission for the last one, I will have you know. We I know have I to do something very special for that person. We we do. We do. We have to figure it out still. But uh, mm-hmm. I agree. I think we need to reward that person for participating in our truly ludicrous art contest. Yes. We Going need to bring her on and bring her, him on, and... Um, I think it was a woman. Have them describe the art that they made and really get in their process, you know? That's right. Really, like... As serious as you can make the conversation with right. the beefy baby parietal cell. <laughs> right. For the record, that was what our former contest was. Um, all right. Well, let's let's wrap start wrapping up Herb Church a little bit with um, with another herb, and then I have another thing towards the end of the episode that I just want to put out there as a theoretical construct for making some of this make sense to kind mm-hmm. of tie a bow around this. So the fourth herb that I really wanted to talk about that I think is in my top four adaptogens that I use with a lot of people is Shizandra. Mm. So Shizandra is the five flavor berry. You get a little bit of everything with it. I'll tell you that it's bitter, it's sweet, it's salty, it's sour, it, it's all the things. And um, 
I, I think that probably the way we've brought it up before, the way I've spoken about it historically, is that it's really, really good for the liver. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's more hepatoprotective than milk thistle. And that's the herb that everybody knows to be protective for the liver. So if it's trumpet milk thistle, it must be pretty darn good for the liver. Um, but it's also really neuroprotective, meaning it's great for your brain. It might have a bit of an antihistamine bend to it as well, like holy basil that we mentioned earlier. And because you get that five flavor experience with it, you get a little bit of astringency mm. with this herb. And that could make it really nice for leaky, loosey-goosey, lax tissues, mm. which would loosely translate to like, oddly enough, prolapse, like the prolapse uterus lady, like that's a leaky, lax tissue that's lacking mm-hmm. tone. Uh, but also things like diarrhea and excess discharge from any orifice you could imagine, Um these things, even like leaky gut could be in that theoretical construct. So I think that Shazandra has a lot of potential benefits to it. Um, another way that I've recommended Shazandra before is it's said to be a really great herb to take before you meditate because mm. it helps you get to a calm, grounded, clear mental state. Mm. So like, you get mental clarity, but it's not stimulating you. And it's calming you without sedating you. And that's exactly the place you want to be when you meditate. So I've been told by a lot of herbalists, and I've gotten some feedback from some patients too, that this is a really wonderful herb to take a bit of before you meditate. That's really interesting. It reminds me of when you do when you I don't know if anyone, hopefully, people listening have done a hypnosis before. But in hypnosis, you do like a longer induction, you know, so you get into a mental state that's probably fairly similar to that, where you have some suggestibility, um, but you're still clear. Um, yeah. I almost think if Shizandra sort of helps you, get, helps induce you into a state where meditation or hypnosis would be more powerful. Yeah, I, I think it would. I think that that's um, very much in line with what I'm saying here. And What's kind it of has interesting? A cool name too, by the way. It is. It's a neat name, and that that makes us happy for sure. And it's a berry. That's kind of fun too. Although you could use other parts of the plant as well. But usually, what you're going to find here in the states is going to be the berry. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's a chi tonic in TCM, like traditional mm-hmm. Chinese medicine. And I'm not trained in TCM, so I'm not going to begin to try to describe what that means. But in my mind, when I hear something is a chi tonic, I think that it's like nourishing and building and fortifying and just like, you know, just builds you up in a good way Mm. and like fills in the gaps that you need filled in. Um, So yeah, just really neat plant. Now, again, I'll share back to herb church. Let me get my books out. (laughs) Let me preach from the adaptogen Bible, apparently. Um, So David Winston shares that Shazandra is calming it's a nourishing adaptogen, hepatoprotective, um, astringes the jing, which is the vital force. I probably mispronounced that. I'm so sorry to any TCM people in the audience right now. Um, anti-asthmatic, which again, hints at antihistamine qualities, anti-inflammatory and immune amphoteric, meaning again, it's balancing and balancing and nourishing for the immune system, which I think is pretty freaking neat. 
Um, now let's go over to Thomas the Bombus and see what he's got to say. Uh, Thomas says, Chisandra is a, again, I don't know if I would say stimulating. He uses the word stimulating here. Chisandra is a stimulating adaptogen and general tonic. It improves circulation, strengthens the heart, aids digestion, and increases bile secretion. Ooh. In traditional Chinese medicine, it's thought to harmonize the body and help retain energy. It helps to keep the nervous system balanced, increases increasing both excitatory and inhibitory action, and the seeds have a hepatoprotective effect similar to that of milk thistle. Pretty wicked. Yeah. Now, again, I'm going to politely disagree with Thomas. I don't think that this is a stimulating herb. That's actually one of the things that I hear most frequently is that it gives you mental clarity without being stimulating. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe we're defining stimulating in a different way. Maybe that's the disconnect here with yeah. that resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had, and I'm sorry, I lied to you. I have two other things to share. Not one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. So first, uh, I just wanted to throw this out there as a, a potential lens to see this with. Uh I remember this came up in an herbal seminar, or I think it was earlier this year, and I had this click in my brain. The herbalist was talking about herbs for spleen chi deficiency in TCM. So as a side note, if nobody knows anything about traditional Chinese medicine, spleen chi has nothing to do with the anatomical spleen. It Oftentimes, the two don't sync up very well in our, in our verbiage. But um, here's something that I pulled off of a website when I was preparing for today's call. They said, the spleen's main function is to help assist its yin-yang pair of the stomach in digestion, and more specifically in the transformation and transportation of food. This is the process of absorbing nutrients from the foods we choose to to and separate the unusable or waste matter. And in this class that I was in earlier this year, he just kind of posed it as what do you want to keep and what do you want to throw away? Mm. Right. And when you Google symptoms of spleen chi deficiency, it's interesting to think about some of these in our population, bloating, fatigue, brain fog, weight gain, abdominal pain after eating, Irregular bowel movements, like that sounds like a lot of the people we work with, maybe mm-hmm. minus the weight gain bit, perhaps. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe if people didn't do the crazy restrictive diets, like maybe <laughs> right. that wouldn't be as much of a thing. But I, you know, you look at some of the symptoms of spleen chi deficiency, of which I only named a few, and it really paints this picture of IBS. And mm-hmm. I I remember this herbalist doing a really nice job wording it where he basically drew the parallels between spleen chi deficiency and things like low stomach acid and poor bile flow and poor enzyme output that we would think of in kind of modern day um, Western medicine. And, you know, similarly, when you look up the herbs that are used to treat spleen chi deficiency, again, there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to claim that I'm versed in TCM herbal medicine. But some of them have adaptogenic or like quasi adaptogenic qualities. So things like astragalus, and codonopsis, and I think ginseng, like a lot of these herbs that are 
building you up and tonifying and nourishing you from the inside out, they're used for spleen chi deficiency. And they could be a possible remedy for the stuff that we end up describing as IBS or SIBO or poor stomach acid production or poor enzyme secretion and like, you know, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency and poor bioflow. And Mm. maybe we just need things that build us up and fortify us and give us resiliency. Maybe that's what it is at the end of the day. Yeah, totally. Food for thought. Um, One more thing to noodle on though. If I may. So this is the one that I almost forgot, but I didn't. So um, David Winston's book is nicely organized. And one of the things that he did, he has a section where he breaks down adaptogens for particular um, purposes. So adaptogens that might be useful for cancer patients, adaptogens that are useful for cognitive and like brain function and nervous system function. And he has a section for digestion. Mm. And I thought I'd make mention of I've already read a a few of these already, but I just wanted to make mention of a few more, just since this is ultimately what people care about. If they're listening to our podcast, they're like, I don't give a shit about resiliency. Just tell me what to take for my tummy. Right, right. Um, I hope none of you are saying that right now. Hopefully you've been with us long enough to know that resiliency is valuable. But um, here are a couple others that get an honorable mention here at the end. So uh, he says, American ginseng, not necessarily Asian ginseng. American ginseng is a bitter tonic used to enhance digestion and absorption of nutrients. Chewing on a small bit of the root can help stimulate gastric acid and digestive juices. This action makes it useful for lack of stomach acid, intestinal rumbling, and impaired absorption. That's pretty neat. What I will say is that you're going to be hard-pressed to find American ginseng, and if you do, please, please, please research how to sustainably harvest it because its numbers are dwindling Mm -hmm. and it ginseng is a plant that does not reproduce quickly. So if you just, if you find it in the woods and then you pick it, it's going to be gone. And you just, you took it away from that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So I think what's more appropriate is if that sounds good to you and you want to try this out, I would say look for an American ginseng tincture and try it that way. I I also I'll say, if we're thinking about it through the lens of being a bitter tonic, I feel like I would spare the ginseng and leave that for the cases who really, really need it. And I would lean more into like dandelion and gentian and other bitter herbs as opposed Mm. to going for the ginseng. So that's for what it's worth. But in theory, that that could be a use here. Uh, Ah, here's what I was talking about. Codonopsis is a spleen chi tonic that enhances the absorption of nutrients, benefits the stomach yin, and relieves cachex... Ca- I'm going to mispronounce it. Cachexia. There we go. That was harder than it should have been. Uh, holy basil, as I said before, is a carminative that's useful for relieving gas, nausea, and vomiting. Uh, I probably don't need to say this one, but licorice has some adaptogen-like qualities. And he, of course, mentions... Licorice offers significant benefit for irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel diseases. It's a good choice for irritation, inflammation, and ulceration of the GI tract. It's a prominent remedy for gastritis, gastric and duodenal ulcers, ileitis, and leaky gut syndrome. And again, licorice does have some adaptogen-like qualities. I think that's in the probable adaptogen category. I I forget, though. Um, And then just two more for funsies. 
Uh, Shatavari is used for gastric irritation and ulcers and to prevent aspirin-induced or alcohol-induced stomach irritation. So that's pretty neat. Um, Shatavari also, sometimes it's combined with ashwagandha. It's another like Ayurvedic herb. Um, It's also really wonderful for hormones, but it, it has a little bit more of a bend towards being good for female hormones which is lovely. So Shatavari, it's, it's a relative of the, of asparagus. Fun little fact about that, but yeah, Shatavari. And then, uh, Shilajit protects the gut ga- against gastric damage and gastritis. So there's Excellent. handful of herbs, a uh, handful of adaptogens specific for digestive function. Um, and honestly, I would also make the argument that she's, uh, yeah, that Shizandra could be good for digestion because of the gut liver axis. And if you keep your Mm. liver and your bile healthy, you're probably going to see some GI benefit to that as well. So I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised that Shizandra didn't make that list in his book, but yeah, I think all of these could be beneficial in some way or another for your GI system, whether it's indirect or direct. So hopefully we gave the listeners something to yeah, think about and think some herbs did. that they want to try. Excellent. Well, I loved getting um, a bit re-educated on some, some herbs today. It's always herb exciting. And, or no, and herb fun. church. Sorry. Herb church. Um, so yeah, this was really fun. I think so. <sighs> and and uh, who knows, maybe in 2024, we could revisit the Nervines and... Maybe do a similar episode. Maybe we'll do the highlight reel for the Nervines instead of we, two episodes where we well, cover I'm, like 30 herbs. What if we got like Thomas on again? That could be super fun. I have some other herbalist friends too that we could invite yeah. on one of these days. And, and some her- uh, herbalist friends to talk about Nervine herbs would be yeah. really fun. We need to we need to map out who we want on this podcast in 2024. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That'd be well, fun. Uh, We'll, we'll think of some good stuff for you guys and surely more art contests along the yes. way since we now have some uh, beautiful artwork from our first on art contest. And that brought me a whole lot of joy. I don't know about you. Um, like, what if the art becomes your new background? There's so much like could pepper the whole background of your we don't want to cover up your your paintings. True. Though, yeah. I feel like we could jazz up your background, though. That's true. You You <laughs> have a canvas ready to paint back there. It's true. Yep. I know. All we'll, right. We'll see. Well, as always, uh, we will find you guys on the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. Amy, do you want to tell them what your Instagram is? Uh, Amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. That's Absolutely. where I am sometimes. I haven't been there quite <laughs> as much as I'd like, but I'm going to gear up for more Sorry. Instagram posts in the new year. There you go. Similarly, uh, I had to take a bit of a hiatus because I was up to my eyebrow hairs re-recording FODMAP Freedom for about half of the year in 2023. And my God, it was a beast. Yeah. Um, but I, I threw it and ver- the new version is phenomenal and impactful. And funny enough, we're going to open the doors for FODMAP Freedom about a week, I think exactly a week after this episode posts, which is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, now that I'm, I'm on the other side of that, uh, I'm you did looking it. You forward made it. to a new year filled with resiliency and surely plenty of adaptogens to help along the way. 
Uh, but I too am hoping to get on Instagram more and you can find me at gut.microbiome.queen. That's my handle on the gram and, and same handle on YouTube for that matter. But, awesome. Right. Until then, toodaloo.